You're listening to The College Connection from New England Public Radio. I'm Casey Gilman. The College Connection is a series of lectures from visiting and local speakers given and recorded at the five colleges. This forum provides an opportunity for listeners to engage with the researchers, intellectuals, poets, and authors active within our academic communities. Steve Waxman is a professor of music and American studies at Smith College. Waxman's talk, Culture High and Low, When Jazz Entered the Concert Hall, looks at the movement of jazz in America from popular music to highbrow symphonic art. This talk was recorded on December 13, 2016 at Smith College. What I'm talking about today has to do with a certain phase in the history of jazz, but it's also a certain phase in the history of concert music, and I want to really stress that I'm talking about both things. Uh, This particular talk is more specifically about jazz, but the dialogue with the sphere of concert music is really at the crux of what I'm trying to get at, because in writing a history of live music, concerts are very much at the center of what I'm working on. And so to interrogate the concert as a particular sort of institution and the concert hall as something that goes along with it is something I'm working towards. And that's really what I'm uh, going to be talking about today. Um, and this is related to these issues of high and low. And I'll take a little bit of time to get into some background around this. Um, students in my American popular culture class this semester have been reading well, started the semester by reading Lawrence Levine's crucial book, Highbrow, Lowbrow. Um, In that book, Levine gives us a history of the cultural tendency to divide culture along lines of high and low. And as he explains in that book, this really took root in the years after the Civil War in the US. There's a very complex history to this, and if you look at it globally, it's working out one way in England, one way in France, one way in Germany. Uh, But in the US, it's really in the post-Civil War years that the tendency to create this kind of cultural hierarchy really starts to take root both ideologically and institutionally. Um, And jazz is something that, of course, wasn't around at the time when this division first starts to get articulated. When jazz emerges in the early 20th century, I think it's very squarely on the low end. It's lowbrow, it's popular, it's not art music, it's not highbrow. But as jazz evolves, it rather quickly, like within a couple decades, starts to get repositioned such that it is occupying kind of a middle ground space. And that's where the move into the concert hall takes, starts to take root. And that's really what I'm trying to explicate a bit today. Um, To give a little more background, on the whole highbrow, lowbrow rubric. Um, I think what's really crucial to know or to understand for my purposes is the way in which this came from the interests of a particular social class. So according to Levine, again, um, this is really about an elite social class that's emerging in industrial capitalism during late 19th century US who are worried about social changes that are happening new waves of immigration, changes around race relations, changes in economics, and are trying to stake out their territory. And so claiming a certain cultural space of high culture as their own is integral to consolidating a kind of social status for themselves. Um, So there's an ideological dimension to this. And 
the term that Levine uses that I think is really helpful along these lines is sacralization. That culture becomes sacralized. It becomes, certain types of cultural works become treated as though they have an almost sacred religious kind of significance attached to them. And this works around visual art, this works around classical music, um, and it also has material implications. So it, you know, a composition will be treated differently, it will be criticized differently by writers, but it's also presented differently. Uh, so that uh, the division between high and low gives rise to new cultural institutions as well. Public places of culture, whether they be museums, libraries, opera houses, or concert halls, proliferate from this moment in the 19th century forward uh, with the understanding that such places were designed to enhance and codify the individual contemplation of great artistic works. That's sacralization, right? Jazz is not part of this again when it begins. And so this is a list I've put together. It fits into some of the broader terms of the research that I'm doing. In the first three decades of the 20th century, these are some of the places where you would have found jazz. Concert halls are part of this. And the cultural shift I'm looking at starts to take hold in the 1920s. But what this list tells us, what it tells me, is that jazz is an incredibly complicated social and cultural phenomenon in the early decades of its history. That it is not one sort of thing, because one sort of thing doesn't exist in all these spaces at once. So jazz is very kind of multivalent in the kinds of meanings that it projects through the first three decades of the 20th century. Most of these spaces, though, are very much vernacular spaces. Um, they're places where people go to dance, where people go to drink, where people go to hang out in less formal ways. Even when the patrons are more high class, as they often were at, say, cabarets, um, the codes of conduct were not high class, right? So just to get a visual read on the sort of cultural differences and how they become spatialized in this time frame, this is one kind of space where jazz appeared. This is a cabaret. Uh, specifically, this is the 400 room at Weber's, which was this very influential restaurant cabaret it, located at Columbus Circle in New York. Uh, in 1917, a group called the Original Dixieland Jazz Band, who were the first white New Orleans group to make their way north and make a recording that was marketed as jazz, they had a residency in this room. And this is where they really kind of broke nationally. I found this at the Hogan Jazz Archive in New Orleans. Uh, it actually says here, you probably can't read it, but it says ODJB Room, which the leader of the band, Nick LaRocca, wrote on the postcard. Um, you know, take the space in for a moment, right? What do you notice? You notice tables with chairs around them where people are going to be sitting, drinking, eating, hanging out, talking to each other. There's a space here for dancing. The stage is going to be over here. You don't even see it in the picture, right? It's not necessarily what people are there for. This is where you would go to see jazz, right? Compared to this. This is Aeolian Hall in New York. You can't move these seats. They all face in one direction, and it's the stage. 
which is what you're supposed to pay attention to, right? Architecture doesn't determine, but it has a very significant impact on how we are positioned as spectators, listeners, attending people, right? The concert hall is designed to encourage a particular way of listening and paying attention. This place is designed to encourage a very different mode of listening and paying attention and interacting with those around you. Now, the other point that I want to make in this connection, and this is, I'm going to spend a little time giving a bit of a capsule history of concert halls and their growth. Um, the modern concert hall is, is a fairly new invention. So there are concert halls of different sorts. Again, in Europe, they're being built at an earlier time than in the US. But dedicated concert halls, a place that was really built only to be a concert hall and not for any other purpose, in the US barely exist prior to the Civil War. There's a lot of opera houses, but opera houses are a completely different kind of institution and they had everything in them, including plays, including entertainments of all different stripes. And they were not designed to be ideal listening environments. And this is really crucial. So when the modern concert hall starts to take shape, one of the things that really defines it as a distinct kind of place is how much attention is paid to the acoustics. Because what you're there for, above all, is to listen. The sound of the music in a sort of highbrow, classical music-oriented sensibility is abstracted from everything else in the performance. You're not supposed to pay attention to the performers. You're not supposed to. You might pay attention to the conductor, and conductors grow in prominence over time. But the ideal way of experiencing the ideal kind of music is only a sound. And so acoustics becomes a completely becomes invested with new importance in this context as music becomes idealized in this very particular way. So you see this wave of concert hall construction that takes root both in Europe and in the US in the two decades leading up to and spilling into the first part of the 20th century. And it's in this time that key American concert halls are built, right? 1891 Carnegie Hall. <coughs> 1900 Symphony Hall in Boston, and 1905 Orchestra Hall in Chicago. And uh, Carnegie Hall in particular is going to figure into this story more later on. Um, what's also crucial is how are these things being built? Because in, especially in the US context, they're being built because for the most part, very wealthy members of the communities where they're being built want them to be built and are encouraging for them to be built. And so there's been sociological and historical work to document how this took shape. Uh, a sociologist named Paul DiMaggio has done some really important work on the institutionalization of highbrow culture. Um, and he coins this phrase, cultural capitalists, which is a play on some ideas from the sociologist Pierre Bourdieu. And it refers to people who use their economic power to build cultural institutions that also consolidate their power and their influence in cultural terms. So there's a relationship between economic power and status and cultural power and status, but it's not a one-to-one -one relationship. There's a very deliberate decision that these folks are making to build these kinds of institutions in order to gain a certain kind of influence. And that without this move, the, con the concert halls that get built would not have been built at least not in the same way with the same values and with the same 
energy. So Carnegie Hall in 1891 is, of course, key. Um, it reflects this trend socially because it's built largely through the sort of collaboration of Andrew Carnegie, the great capitalist, and um, a conductor of the time, uh, ah, whose name I'm actually kind of spacing out on right now, but uh, he was important. <laughs> and uh, it, was the, it was the collaboration of conductor and capitalist that shows something of the sort of social formation that gave rise to concert halls as an institution, right? An artistic elite and an economic elite form a cultural elite together. Um, Carnegie Hall was built on the model of certain European concert halls. It has this very distinct rectangular or shoebox shape that was considered to be very innovative within architectural plans around concert hall design at the time. Um, and this had significant implications for acoustics in particular. So I'll read you a, a description of the acoustic design of Carnegie Hall. This comes from an architectural historian named Marco, Michael Forsyth. And he says that the shape of Carnegie Hall, um, but the shape of Carnegie Hall created a relatively small volume for the area of seating and consequently a short reverberation time. Reverberation time is really crucial because what architectural acoustic became all about was controlling reverberation time, too much reverberation time, and the sound was muddy, and you couldn't hear it clearly enough, and thus it disrupted the sort of ideal listening experience. But not enough reverberation time, and you didn't have enough sense of space that would allow you to lose yourself in the sound. So it's the proper balance that people are working towards. Um, the tiers of seats present present a large sound absorptive area to the orchestra, with a smaller area of sound reflective wall surface than in the traditional rectangular hall. And the key here, again, is architects are working with this goal in mind much more self-consciously, perfecting acoustics. And they're also increasingly working with a greater scientific understanding of the acoustic principles that are being built into these spaces. That becomes especially crucial with Boston Symphony Hall. Symphony Hall stood as a milestone in the evolution of what science historian Emily Thompson has called the soundscape of modernity. By Thompson's account, Symphony Hall was recognized as the first auditorium in the world to be constructed according to laws of modern science. Indeed, it not only embodied but instigated the origins of the modern science of acoustics. So this is crucial, right? The building of a particular concert hall has everything to do with the rise of acoustics as a modern scientific discipline. And the guy who made that happen was this guy, Wallace Sabine. He was a Harvard physicist, a pioneering scientist in the realm of acoustic engineering. He was hired by Henry Higginson, who was the wealthy financier who funded the Boston Symphony Orchestra in 1880, and 20 years later wanted to build a suitable concert hall to house it. Sabine perfected a formula for measuring and controlling reverberation time that became standard in architectural acoustics moving forward. And this was really groundbreaking scientific work that also had very tangible implications for the kinds of environments in which we listen to music. Uh, when it was completed in 1900, Symphony Hall epitomized the union of scientific rationality and aesthetic contemplation, creating a modern listening environment that was predominantly employed to hear and appreciate musical works 
representing a great tradition of European art music. This is where I think we see how the divide between highbrow and lowbrow assumes a very tangible material cast. Classical music more and more happened in one sort of space, which was designed to accommodate habits of listening that had arisen alongside the status that became attached to it. No other musical style would have spaces they could so securely claim for themselves for many years to come. And when dedicated jazz clubs did begin to emerge in the 1930s, they were designed according to a very different set of criteria. Nobody was going to hire a Harvard physicist to help design a place meant primarily to house jazz or any other form of popular music either. So that's cultural power being translated into material terms. Okay, I turn to Paul Whiteman. Paul Whiteman is the guy who really, above all, pushes the move of jazz into the concert hall. There had been some precursors to this, and as a historian, one of the things that you fuss over is how do you define your terms, right? So jazz is one of those terms you can define a lot of different ways. Uh, there was an African-American orchestra leader in the 19-teens named James Reese Europe, very significant figure. As early as 1912, he hosted a series of concerts in Carnegie Hall. But he was really more a product of the ragtime era. So I don't think it makes sense to say he was doing jazz proper, and it's really a different line of development that led him to get into Carnegie Hall. It, by the 1920s, jazz was its own phenomenon. It had broken off from ragtime. It was something that was widely commented on and was a source of great social concern and no small amount of scandal. People were like kind of freaked out at how popular jazz was because it was seen as being overly sexualized, because it was seen as promoting undue amounts of commerce between African-Americans and white Americans. Um, there were a lot of reasons why the social impact of jazz caused social concern, which meant that for an artist like Whiteman who wanted to make jazz into something respectable, his term that he used at the time was he wanted to make a lady out of jazz. Right? Talk about loaded terminology. Um, but that was what he had to work against in order to make it respectable. Right? All these associations that had become infused into the music as it was becoming a very broad-based social phenomenon. In 1924, Whiteman stages this concert at Aeolian Hall, one of the spaces I showed you earlier. Uh, it's called The Experiment in Modern Music. And it's most well known now for having um, hosted the debut of George Gershwin's composition Rhapsody in Blue, which was specifically composed for this concert and commissioned by Whiteman. Um, but Whiteman had already a very prominent place in American music prior to that point. He was pretty much the most popular American musician of the 1920s for all intents and purposes. Certainly the most popular and significant whose name was associated with jazz. He is not well liked by jazz historians though. Um, his success has generally been understood to indicate the extent to which in the 19-teens and 20s white artists were able to capitalize on jazz in a way that their African-American counterparts couldn't and he's been charged with deliberately diminishing black contributions to jazz in order to bolster his own perceived achievements. How much of this was specifically his fault is kind of hard to say, but if you read through the criticism of the time, he is talked about to the exclusion of damn near everyone, but especially his African-American counterparts. 
There are other white band leaders who compete with white men for some degree of visibility. There are no African-American players who have anywhere near the same level of recognition in the same time, even though everyone, even then, more or less acknowledged jazz came from African-American sources. Um, the critic Gilbert Seldes, who was a very significant cultural critic of the 1920s, um, explained it this way, and it's, his explanation itself kind of shows you this racially exclusive ways of thinking that were prevalent at the time. Um, Saldes wrote, nowhere is the failure of the Negro to his, exploit his gifts more obvious than in the use he has made of the jazz orchestra. For although nearly every Negro jazz band is better than nearly every white band, no Negro band has yet come up to the level of the best white ones and the leader of the best of all, by a little joke, is called white man. As problematic as white man is, though, he also really significantly broadened what jazz meant to the public at large. And when many people, leading spokespeople in society, were prone to criticize jazz almost as a reflex for the various things that it represented, he was a very staunch defender of the music including its more racially inclusive casts. Um, the experiment in modern music that Whiteman staged at Aeolian Hall was indicative of his stance. It was a self-serving exercise in seeking to elevate jazz, but it also maintained one foot very squarely in the realm of popular entertainment. Um, and he was trying to make the case that Michael said I have been trying to make all along, which is to take popular music seriously. That was Paul Whiteman's goal in many ways. Uh, just, I'll play you a very small snippet. This was Whiteman's first big hit in 1920 called Whispering. For the part where it gets interesting, it doesn't come. <laughs> uh, his band was one that mostly just played straight melodies, very well orchestrated. The style of jazz he was associated with became called symphonic jazz, and that had much to do with the way in which he laid the groundwork <coughs> for making jazz something that would be presented in this more respectable kind of setting, which is what Aeolian Hall was. Uh, so the Aeolian Hall, where Whiteman staged his 1924 concert, was a fairly new venue at the time. It had been built in 1912. It was built by the Aeolian Piano Company, which was primarily known for making player pianos, right? The kinds of pianos you don't actually need to know how to play in order to play. Uh, and pia player pianos companies did a lot of work to try to make what they did seem like they were legitimate music-making devices, even though they were basically just almost like playing a record. Um, but there was a longer history of piano manufacturers building concert halls that they would use to promote their own brand. And so this is where you see how the effort to promote serious music lines up with the more commercial aspects of 
music making in ways that go somewhat against the grain of the ideology of highbrow. Highbrow, one of the things that usually is uh, a tenet of highbrow cultural ideology is that commerce isn't so much a part of it, right? That we're making culture for the sake of culture, art for the sake of art. But what you find when you dig into the history of classical music, anybody knows this who's a good music historian, is commerce is everywhere, right? Uh, and there are people who made this, made this their business. And so that's where a space like Aeolian Hall comes in. It's built according to those acoustic principles that are meant to elevate music into the realm of idealized highbrow cultural experience. But it's also an office building that's renting space to all kinds of businesses in downtown, in midtown Manhattan. This was actually like one of the leading edge buildings that gave rise to the modern uh, formation of Times Square, right? So this is not idealized, immaterial culture. It's fully materialized, right, in the middle of the highest real estate district in the U.S. Whiteman starts the big publicity campaign. He lines up a concert in Aeolian Hall. He knows that doing this is itself is part of the publicity. He knows that having a jazz concert in a place like Aeolian Hall is a selling point. He's very much following in the footsteps of someone like P.T. Barnum, who knew that the thing that one of the best ways to sell culture was to do something that seemed incongruous to people and pique their curiosity so that they would want to see that thing for themselves. Jazz in a classical music venue? That's so strange. I want to see what that's going to be like, right? And that became the mechanism of publicity, and Whiteman plugged it really hard. And so what does he set about doing? He sets about commissioning com compositions specifically for the concert. He makes press announcements saying that he's going to demonstrate to everybody what true American music is and whether there really even is American music in the first place because this was something people argued about, right? There was a certain train of thought that was like all real music comes from Europe. So Whiteman was going to try to settle the score. Is there an American music worth taking seriously? That's one of the questions his concert set out to address. Uh, he commissions work specifically from Irving Berlin, who was not a classical music composer, but was a very, very well-regarded popular music composer, of course, from Victor Herbert, who's someone we'd now probably classify as middlebrow, but back in the 1920s had a very well-established reputation for writing operettas and other types of musical works that were very respectable, but not necessarily considered to be the most serious type of musical entertainment. Gershwin's participation was almost a sort of last minute thing. And, and the way the story gets told is that Whiteman had some informal conversation with Gershwin. They'd worked on some shows together previously. And he was like, hey, you know, I'm doing this concert. And maybe you want to write a piece. And Gershwin was like, cool, man. And then Gershwin like forgot about it. And then Whiteman made a comment in a newspaper article saying, oh, yeah, George Gershwin's going to have a new piece. And Gershwin was like, I think it was Gershwin's brother who was like, uh, George, Paul Whiteman's saying you're writing a new piece for his concert. And George's like, oh, right. So he like writes it really quickly. And he does it with a lot of help. And this is important to understand because this allows us also to see that, you know, even a great piece of 
composed music like Rhapsody in Blue is often considered to be, it doesn't exist in, as, an, as an abstraction, right? It's written for a very specific event under very specific circumstances. And Whiteman himself had much to do with the shape that the piece took, and even more so uh, Whiteman's arranger, Fared Grofe, who also played piano in the Whiteman Orchestra, was deeply involved in collaborating with Gershwin on preparing the piece so that it could be played properly by Whiteman's orchestra at this 1924 concert. So this is the Whiteman band as it appeared at this Aeolian Hall concert. If we go back a couple of slides, I'll point out, this is, a, this is the unexpanded group. This is the way Whiteman's group usually appeared in the years prior to the Aeolian Hall concert. And what you might notice, if you can see this, is it's pretty much all horns. There's one violin player. Whiteman himself was a violinist. I didn't mention that earlier. He didn't play a ton. He was mostly there to conduct. And there's a banjo. Uh, those are the strings. But mostly we got horns, and there would have been a piano. For the Aeolian Hall concert, he's got a much expanded orchestra, and most of what's expanded is the string section. Lots more violins, uh, because he wants a more orchestral sound, right? That's part of the symphonic jazz uh, orientation. Grofe, the arranger who works so much with Gershwin on orchestrating Rhapsody in Blue and getting it attuned to the specific musicians that are in Whiteman's group, is here. He's also the piano player, as I mentioned, so that's him right. So this is the program for the experiment in modern music at Aeolian Hall. It's probably not easy to read. Uh, this comes from the New York Tribune. I didn't have a ready copy of the actual program from the concert. But what I want to point out is, you know, what happens when jazz gets moved into the concert hall? What Whiteman does is he tries to give the concert a narrative structure. This is like telling the story of jazz's evolution and progress. Right? So you're not just presenting jazz as this contemporary thing, but you're presenting jazz as this music that, even though it's really only been around for about a decade, already has a history. And that history has involved a movement from less evolved to more evolved, from more primitive to less primitive and more refined styles of presenting the music. And this is very explicit in the way that he organizes the concert. So he starts with a selection that's titled True Form of Jazz. And it's a small group of his musicians playing a song that was originally recorded by the original Dixieland Jazz Band, this group of white musicians who had made the first jazz record in 1917, right? Only seven years earlier, not very long. But anything he can do to give the music a history, because that's how you justify belonging in the concert hall, right? Uh, so he plays the song Livery Stable Blues. And that's the opening gesture. And the gesture is meant to say, our music is better than this. He's making fun of this song by playing it. As he goes on, he presents music that is ostensibly of greater and greater sophistication and complexity. And it culminates, of course, with Rhapsody of Blue, which is the next to last selection that he plays in the concert. Right? So it's a story. And this is very common in jazz concerts through the 1920s and 30s. You had to have a narrative. And the narrative was supposed to demonstrate that jazz was a music that was evolving towards greater and greater sophistication and complexity. By the time you get to the end of the 30s, though, the 
impulse towards this is starting to diminish because jazz is assuming greater and greater cultural authority as a thing unto itself. So what I'm not going to have time to talk about so much is what happens when Benny Goodman gets into the concert hall in 1938. And he's putting a very different kind of concert on, although it still has some of the same principles at work. In fact, one of the things he does at the beginning of his concert is he plays a, an original Dixieland jazz band song. But it's not quite with the same intent of making fun. It is to a degree, but not in the same way. And the whole concert proceeds very differently from there. There's no recording of Whiteman actually doing this song, but I do have a recording of the original Dixieland jazz band. I think it's worth listening for a minute. So this is the song that Whiteman used to open his concert at Aeolian Hall. sounds are really crucial, right? Because if you're starting with a piece that's supposed to suggest that there's a primitive beginning from which you have evolved, animalism is a good quality project, right? Uh, so imagine this is, you know, Whiteman, his musicians come on stage and they emulate this, right? And they're doing so trying to satirize it, trying to make it parody, trying to make it something that you would react to, you know, maybe laughing or maybe even just going like, ew. But he kind of fails. And you get a sense of that. He fails in the sense that his musicians play the stuff well enough that w the audience is actually like, oh, that's actually good. Right? You get that from Olin Downs, who was the classical music reviewer for the New York Times, who reviewed the concert at length. So this is a snippet of his review. Um, and this is what Downs has to say about uh, the version of Livery Stable Blues. There were verbal as well as programmatic explanations. The concert was referred to as educational to show the development of this type of music. Thus, the livery stable blues was introduced apologetically as an example of the depraved past from which modern jazz has risen. The apology is herewith indignantly rejected, for this is a gorgeous piece of impudence, much better than in its unbuttoned jocosity and Rabelaisian laughter than other and more polite compositions that came later. <laughs> in effect, this like completely undermines the whole premise of Whiteman's concert. Like, no, that early stuff's actually really cool and fun, and all that other stuff is just pretentious and kind of dumb. But 
It wasn't quite that pronounced, but a lot critics didn't quite know what to do with Whiteman's concert. There was a lot of divided reaction to it. There was some real celebration of it, but there was also questioning of the premises of the concert and of the execution. Even Rhapsody in Blue was not wholeheartedly welcomed as the greatest piece of music people had ever heard. Um, there were a lot of classical music critics in particular who really questioned its value and questioned um, its integrity as a composed piece of music. Uh, and they didn't want to buy into Whiteman's claims about how he himself represented the grand evolution of popular music as we know it. Nonetheless, Rhapsody in Blue for us, I think, stands pretty clearly as a major musical statement of that time and one that has had enduring influence and appeal. Um, and given the time, I think it's worth listening to at least a little of it because what what's great is that we have, we don't have, nobody was recording this concert. The technology to do that did not exist in 1924. Um, but Whiteman was a very prolific recording artist, and he actually made the first recording of at least a version of the whole of Rhapsody in Blue. It's actually a bit truncated because records were only four minutes long at the time, so they did it as much as they could fit on two sides of a record. So it's like a nine minute long version, which is about half of the overall work. But still, it's the Whiteman Orchestra with Gershwin on piano playing his parts. Uh, and that's kind of special. So I'll play a minute or two of this. Now the opening glissando, the clarinet glissando that you hear is by Ross Gorman, who was a key member of Whiteman's orchestra and who worked very closely with Gershwin and with Ferd Grofe, the arranger, to get just the right effect at the opening of the song. Because if anyone knows this piece, you know that the way that clarinet enters into the song is crucial. It's, it's like the signature part of the whole piece. And that is an example of how this piece was composed very much with this group of musicians in mind. Thank you. 
have to stop it somewhere. As esteemed as Rhapsody in Blue has become, I think it also really embodied many of the tensions and contradictions that were there in Whiteman's effort to bring jazz into the concert hall. Um, it's designed as a concert work, but it's not a symphony. It's not even a concerto. It's a rhapsody, which is kind of an odd category within classical music. It, it, isn't, it, it thus kind of resists a certain canonical form. And as such, critics heard it as lacking that form. One of the main criticisms that was lodged against the piece at the time was that it was formless, that it was a bunch of playing without a lot of structure. And there's a lot of it that's just Gershwin playing unaccompanied piano, for instance. Um, it, of course, eventually does get canonized, and that happens pretty quickly. So as early as the late 1930s, you've got Virgil Thompson, who's one of the great American composers of the period, and also a great music critic of the time, too. And he writes, and this is kind of grudging appreciation, but he says, of Rhapsody in Blue. This is in like 1938 or thereabouts. It is the most successful orchestral piece ever launched by any American composer. It is by now standard orchestral repertory all over the world, just like Rimsky's Scheherazade and Ravel's Bolero. So within a decade, this piece has become canonized. And the fact that it entered that status while having started in the midst of this very peculiar sort of jazz concert for me, suggests just how much jazz's entry into the concert hall changed the larger cultural understanding of what concert music was. That there was a complete redefinition of what kind of music fit that kind of space that had already occurred by the late 1930s. It would continue to evolve. Um, and probably this is about where I'm going to have to start coming to a conclusion given the time um, I'm, I can't resist at least alluding to some of the stuff that would have come. What I was going to start to talk about next, this is an ad from the New York Tribune uh, for a concert. It, you, you barely know anything just from looking at it, right? This is, I'm a historian, so I, I know how to read this up. Vincent Lopez is the name there. He did a concert in, in November of 1924 at the Metropolitan Opera House that was basically an imitation of Whiteman's concert. Uh, but what I'm interested in is actually not Lopez so much. It's the guy whose name is at the top, S. Yurok. Saul Yurok was this groundbreaking classical music promoter who made classical music into a business in a way that really was kind of unprecedented in the 1920s and all the way through a career that lasted up to the 1970s. In 1924, he promotes this odd Vincent Lopez concert at the Metropolitan Opera House, which is another stab at classicizing jazz. Um, in 1938, he presents Benny Goodman at Carnegie Hall, 14 years later. So there's this through line in the efforts to present jazz as concert music. And I'll just say this, because it's worth giving myself some credit. Nobody else has made this connection, <laughs> because nobody else, I think, did the digging in newspapers to see his name up at the top of an ad like this. So Yurok's. A uh, biographer never mentions this concert. Yurok himself never mentions this concert in his autobiography. 
nobody who's written about Benny Goodman's concert has ever has. They all mentioned that Saul Yurok was involved, but nobody mentions that Yurok had ever produced a jazz concert before. For me, this reconfigures some things because what it lets us see is that there's people working within the world of classical music who are also trying to make this happen. It's not just coming from jazz artists trying to get respectable, but it's also coming from classical music promoters and producers and people who work within the concert hall system trying to develop a more inclusive sort of culture around the concert hall and also to sell the things that happen in the concert hall to a wider and more diverse audience economically and to some degree racially. And, and that score, one of the things that really matters is that Yurok also was the manager for Marian Anderson and was instrumental in producing her concert at the Lincoln Memorial in 1939, which was a year after Benny Goodman plays at Carnegie Hall. Um, if I had more time, I'd elaborate. <laughs> but I hope I've piqued your interest enough. So thank you. Now let's listen to a bit more of Rhapsody in Blue, recorded in 1924.
was an excerpt from George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, recorded in 1924. Rhapsody in Blue was a jazz piece that changed the cultural understanding of concert music, according to Professor of Music and American Studies at Smith College, Steve Waxman. Waxman writes on the cultural history of music and instrumentation. He is the author of This Ain't the Summer of Love, Conflict and Crossover in Heavy Metal and Punk. Waxman's talk was recorded on December 13, 2016 at Smith College. Next week, we'll hear from Daniel Lieberman, a paleoanthropologist and biology professor at Harvard University, speaking at UMass Amherst. Lieberman's work suggests that humans have evolved to be both athletic and to avoid unnecessary activity. This paradox, Lieberman says, has led to the modern medical crises faced by developed countries, as human bodies need more exercise than they often get. We have abundant data, some of it coming from here in Amherst, right, that with the agricultural revolution, infectious disease rates just skyrocketed around the world. And most of the diseases that we really care about today are diseases that became common or evolved, actually, since the origins of farming. So infectious diseases are actually a very recent problem. And it's only with the industrial era, with sanitation and medicine and various other advances, that those infectious disease rates fell precipitously. But at the same time, as I've mentioned before, chronic non-infectious diseases have been rising since the in origins of industrialization. But one of the questions you have to ask is, are they necessary, right? Are these diseases a concomitant increase, uh, you know, uh, product of, the, of, the, of this epidemiological transition? And people who look at the health of hunter-gatherers, people who don't live modern, developed lives, routinely, inevitably, find that the answer to that question is no. This is some broad brush data. There's no data here. These are just statements. Um, but there's plenty of data to back them up, which is that hunter-gatherers tend to live pretty healthy lives if they survive childhood. They have high child mortality rates. That's absolutely true. But they don't live at high population densities. They don't live with farm animals. They move frequently. They don't have a lot of sanitation concerns, etc. Um, they have naturally a very uh, healthy diet, um, uh, low, in, low in processed foods, high in fiber, very nutritious diets. Um, and they get a lot of physical activity. Your average hunter-gatherer uh, female walks uh, about five miles a day. The average hunter-gatherer male walks about 10 miles a day. They don't have to work crazy hard. They work about four to six hours a day. Um, they have um, naturally pretty healthy lives. There's lots of data on this. Let me just show you uh, one uh, study, because uh, I've actually become very recently interested in, in heart disease, and we're doing a lot of research uh, with some colleagues who are cardiologists on, on heart disease in some of these populations. So this is a very famous data set. Um, so this is a, this is a, so most people in medical school learn that it's natural for your blood pressure to rise with age. In fact, medical students are taught that's just normal. Right? As people get older, their blood pressure rises, right? And here's some standard data. This is from Brits in London, right? So when you're young, you're 117 over 70, and by the time you're in your 70s, you're 186 over 90. These are averages, right? These are not surprising data. Here are some data from the, from the Bushmen in the Kalahari. And we have equivalent data from Mexico as well. So this is, not, this, is, this is typical of people who live forager lives. You can see there's absolutely no statistically significant increase in systolic or diastolic blood pressure in these populations. So don't tell me that it, you have to have blood pressure increases as you age. That's a completely false conception. You've been listening to The College Connection from New England Public Radio, a series of lectures from visiting and local speakers given and recorded at the five colleges. 
You can find more College Connection online at nepr.net or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. For New England Public Radio, I'm Casey Gilman.